The Nuts and Bolts of Writing, Season Two, a podcast where we talk about literature, the ins and outs of writing, and how to actually start writing. Hi, everyone. Today, co-host Fortunate Games—that's me—and Tetsi the Punk talk to artist and writer Carrie Knowles about her novel, The. Inevitable Past, which Tete and I have read, had the pleasure of reading. Check out episodes 211, 212, and 213 for Carrie's first appearances on this podcast, where she talked about writing fiction, writing nonfiction, and the link between visual art and writing, respectively. Here's Carrie's bio: Carrie Knowles is a prolific, award-winning author and arts advocate. Along with her nine books, she has published short stories, newspaper and magazine articles, and received numerous awards for her writing. She was named a North Carolina Piedmont's Laureate for Short Fiction in 2014. Carrie has published five novels: Lillian's Garden, Ashwin's Rug, A Garden Wall in Provence, The Inevitable Past, and A Musical Affair, as well as Black Tie Optional. A collection of seventeen of her short stories, her memoir *The Last Childhood: A Family Story of Alzheimer's* has been described as a must-read for family members caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's. During her time as the 2014 Piedmont Laureate, conducting writing workshops across five counties in North Carolina, she wrote a writing workbook aimed at providing the basic tools a new writer would need to get started. A self-guided workbook and gentle tour on learning how to write stories from start to finish. She writes a personal perspectives column for Psychology Today, Shifting Forward, and has recently published a collection of the first 50 stories from her column titled Shifting Forward: 50 Reflections on Daily Life. To learn more about Carrie, go to her website. We've provided a link in the description. As for the novel that we're going to be talking about today. Which is the focus of this podcast? It was published in 2020 by Al Canyon Press. It is a story of two women, a grandmother and a granddaughter who never knew her, and a timely look at women's right to vote and have a voice. It challenges the notion of who we are and what compels us to make life-changing decisions. Without further ado, let's explore the inevitable past. So, the first question: How did you develop? A ghost as a strong interactive character. Most stories with ghosts are "quote unquote" ghost stories. Well, I didn't want this book to be a ghost story. I wanted the ghost in the book, which is the grandmother, to actually be more like a full-blown character with a, a past, and ironically, with a present and a future. Um, because the ghost wants something from her granddaughter, so that that's the connection between the two main characters: is the grand one is the grandmother, the other one is the granddaughter. And um, I wanted this, this may sound strange, but I wanted to be believable and normal, and for you, the reader, to sort of be able to settle into not thinking. I, I didn't want them to think about. 
Is it possible for a ghost to be there? Is it not possible? What is a ghost? I, I wanted that to sort of disappear. Isn't that funny? Uh, disappearing ghosts. I, I wanted that notion to um, not hang over the book. I wanted it to be like, oh, okay, she's dead and she's talking from the grave and she's a ghost. And the first time you see her as uh, a full ghost is in a, a brief incident right after she dies. And then when the second half of the book starts, we see her beginning to make her presence known to her granddaughter in Chicago, which is significant um, as the story develops. So I wanted the I wanted the ghost to be normal. I wanted you to feel completely comfortable as a reader, and I didn't want you to toss off the book as oh, this is paranormal. It, it's normal. Mm -hmm. I think that's really great because unfortunately a lot of people have a lot of preconsumption, a lot of assumptions um, use certain genre tags. For example, you know, paranormal, as you said, people already have a preconception of what that genre entails. So I think your approach is, you know, going across genres. Right. And not making it a paranormal. Um, and then because at the, you know, the grandmother becomes solid in a way. She becomes a viable character for the other members in the book. So there are other ghosts in the book as well. And so when they come, you're like, oh, okay, there's more. Um, but they're all with a purpose. They're not there to scare, they're to drive the storyline. And I think that's why it works is because the ghosts in the book um drive the storyline, make the story move forward and work. Mm -hmm, definitely. Especially, you know, at the beginning, we get to see the ghost, you know, when she was alive, the first ghost, the grandmother ghost. And then in the second half of the book, we see her and the other ghosts interact with someone in the future. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I think that that's perfectly possible. And so I went with that assumption that it was normal, a possibility. And then it became, I didn't worry about them being a ghost. It's, it's interesting. I'm working on a piece now um, that's a full length play. And so there, a conversation between two women that may, um, that I felt was really important for them to have. And I was struggling with sort of the timeline of their, their real people in history and struggling with the timeline of, you know, how do I make them connect? And, and um, I have a very good friend who is a uh, director, uh, a theater director, and he's been cheering me on. And he, in a phone conversation one day, he said, why are you worried about this? He said, whether, you know, you can, you can make them whatever you want to make them. And he said, and people will believe you because you're going to write this in a believable way. And I think that's the key. You write it in a believable way and people are not going to say, wait a minute, this is a ghost story. I don't want to deal with this. You know, let me push this aside to something else. So I thought that was really good advice of his is, you know, make it believable and no one will question you as to what's going on. I totally agree. That is really good advice. You know, as the author, if you believe in your vision and you take the steps to show it to the reader, then it will be convincing. Yes, exactly. And that becomes your job as the writer is to um, 
to make it feel normal, to make it to to get your reader to open that book and let themselves be part, you know, read into that and and be there with the, those characters. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So it's very important also to think about the user experience, you know, how the reader sees the book and interacts with the language and the themes and the characters. Right. And so then I think that the onus on the writer is to uh, pay attention to the details and give me believable details, um, which leads into another question that, you know, we, I hope we'll talk about, which is, you know, how much research should you do? You know, how much should you sort of give the underpinnings of accuracy for place and time? And I think that those accuracies of place and time then create um, a background for those characters to have real expressive moments in the place and time, whether they're alive or not alive. Mm -hmm. Great points. So second question is, how did we, me and Tete, and the readers, by extension, the other readers, feel about the grandmother's ghost? So Tete, do you want to uh, answer this question first or did you want me to start? Tete? Oh, I do apologize. I had some technical difficulties with my mic. If you would like to go ahead and answer the question, go ahead. Right. Okay. So how I felt when I first read the book was that I felt she was very interactive, like right off the bat, you know, I was fully absorbed in her story, you know, how she decided to leave her town and um, go to Chicago and be a typewriter. Um, this was the term they used for people who used the typewriters as well, not just the machine. And, um, you know, in the series of events that follows. So I felt you know, very, very connected to her during the first half of the book, which is about her when she was alive. And then in the second half of the book, we focus on her granddaughter and how she feels called and compelled to go to Chicago and investigate and find out more about the grandma, you know, she never really knew about. Because um, I guess, spoiler alert for people who have not read the book. Um, so what happens is that the grandma, um, she ends up after a series of events, you know, she shows up at a home for uh, unmarried mothers and, you know, she is at the brink of death. So she cannot really talk. And um, so she gives birth and people do not know where she came from, how she ended up like that. And that's how, you know, the great grand, how the granddaughter does not know about her story. But, you know, the granddaughter feels called to Chicago to investigate. And that's where, you know, she starts getting these visions and these uh, interactive bits from the ghosts, starting with the grandma, but also from other ghosts later on in the book. Yeah, and I think what's what I like about that sequence where the grandmother begins to reveal herself to the granddaughter is that the reader has already bought into the ghost, but the granddaughter is taken aback by the ghost. And so you almost, you know, I felt like I wanted the reader to kind of say, hey, pay attention, you know, it's, she's there. And it takes Regina uh, a half a beat to get on the program and um, sort of not be unnerved by her grandmother's appearance. Mm -hmm, right. I, I do recall the scenes when she first started 
you know, getting these visions from her and she was very creeped out. But then later on, you know, she begins she begins to have a rapport with um the grandmother ghost and also the other ones and you know really gets to experience their emotions firsthand, which was very emotional like for me because you know as I went through the book you know I really felt a lot of emotion I, I even cried at some points hmm. well I guess that that's a, a compliment you know yes definitely so um what did you feel about um the grandmother's ghost Tete I was very how do I say the the introduction was very subtle yet powerful and it really drew us into you know, an absolute realism, you know, that this is, this would, this is definitely as a real person would have lived. And, you know, the, the very reality of which she faced was a very daunting reality that many, you know, many women of that time and still in, in many other places still face. And I was really struck by her determinism, her resilience, but, you know, also at the same time, just the very core of her heart, you know, and it, it was a very, very heartbreaking journey to see. And I, I think it's it's definitely a very relevant lesson, you know, to consider about, you know, how our how our society has changed over the time that, you know, we take so many things for granted. But uh, for me, about the ghost, per se, I've. I've, I've always been very open to believing a number of uh, unusual uh, concepts, uh, perhaps not in the conventional way as many people would purport it, but um, as someone who has had some experiences that uh, logic or science or equations cannot fully explain, uh, you know, it's sort of like the uh, conclusion that if there's no other explanation, then the only other explanation is is the conclusion you have before you so i'm very open to it and i what the what what is being experienced by the granddaughter you know for me it's very palpable it's very believable and it's presented in such a respectful reverent way with a lot of realism that evoked a lot of qualities that i myself have experienced um with a similar experience i i was very very impressed with its depiction and I thought it was very neatly done. I, I was very, very, it was haunting, it, no pun intended. It, it was just beautifully haunting, no pun intended. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. A lot of people have commented that I, that uh, it, it felt natural for this to be happening. Um, and I thought that was great. You know, I felt like, okay, I did it. You know, I managed to um, bring people to the page and have them sort of suspend their disbelief for a moment. Definitely. Right. So the third question, how was it like to publish a story that is out of the quote unquote normal realm of what is popular in publishing today? Did it make it harder to pitch oh, your work? I've, if you look at all of my books, it's like, <laughs> I, you know, I, I haven't quite... I don't know if it's been stubbornness or whatever um, that uh, I've not quite hit the mainstream. And, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell a funny story, not so funny story, kind of funny story. Um, none of 
this is the only, I'm trying to think of this is the only book that has a ghost in it. There may be a ghost in some other book, but um, actually there is in uh, Ashwin's Rug. But, um, you know, I, I write the stories I see or I understand I want to, to talk about or I feel should talk about. This was a very important book to me because of um, just the, you know, realizing um, how far we've come, but how far we haven't come. But um, the first time Owl Canyon published me, I had a, a novella called A Garden Wall in Provence. And it's um, at one point I said to myself, okay, you know, if you're worth your salt, you should be able to write a love story. So this was my love story. And it's a sweet story um, set in uh, Provence in France. And it's a novella, and um, it, it got rejected by so many people. It was incredible. I had a, a big publisher who was almost interested in it. And then they said, um, you know, that the thing that was hot right now in novellas was um, Amish love stories. And could I move this story that is set in Provence for a reason because of the culture in southern France? could I reset the story in an Amish village? And I said, oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I remember, I remember that oh. trend. Oh, Beverly Lewis just dominated the charts. Oh. oh yeah. And I said, no, I'm really sorry. I can't do that. And then another publisher, a similar thing happened. They said, oh, the really hot thing now with novellas is soft porn. Could you meet this? <laughs> you know, I, I really can't. Oh, gracious. <laughs> oh, no. It's this sweet. So anyway, um, I sent it to Owl Canyon uh, because I, a friend of mine had been published by them. And and uh, uh, he said, you know, you ought to try them. And so I sent Garden Wall in Provence. And um, Jean, the, you know, the publisher, called me which was very nice because sometimes they never speak to you, whatever. And he called me and he said, listen, I have to tell you something. He said, I really, really, really love this book. But he said, you know, it's a novella. And I said, yeah, I'm really aware of that. It is a novella. It is exactly what it is. And I said, and I can't move it to an Amish village and I can't turn it into softboard. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, it's charming and it's wonderful. He said, but I'm going to lose my shirt if I publish this. He said, so I'm going to have to turn it down. And I said, okay. I said, I just, I said, I can't believe that you called me to tell me this. This is so wonderful. <laughs> so a couple of weeks go by and he calls me again. And he says, I, he said, I had to call you. He said, I, I reread your book. And he said, I absolutely love it. He said, but, I, and I wanted to tell you that. He said, but I can't publish it. I just can't publish this book because it's not going to make any money because uh, it doesn't fit anywhere. And I said, I understand in that completely. Don't worry about it. I said, but thank you for telling me that you love the book. A couple more weeks pass and he calls me a third time and he says, look, my partner Keith has read the book and I have read the book for the third time and we've decided we love it and we're going to publish it and we're going to lose our shirt. And that was it. That's and then amazing. they started publishing my books. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, as Gene told me, because I, I was in correspondence with him, and that's how oh, yeah. I met you. You know, he referred you to me. So um, he told me that he's no longer publishing because it's so hard to break even in the publishing yeah, industry. Yeah, it's really hard. And he's, you know, um, he's published some lovely books, and he's worked very hard. And he's been really wonderful to work with. It's, you know, we've developed a friendship over the years. And of course, he's published five of my books at this point, you know, and I, I feel so bad because I haven't made him rich. I haven't made either one of us rich. But, you know, back to your question of, you know, what's it like to have tried to sell this book um, that didn't fit any genre? Um, my other books haven't fit any. The book that's fit best, absolutely fit the best has been, well, two of them, the writing workbook, but it's a different kind of writing workbook. It's not the standard write, writing workbook. And the other one is the um, the collection of essays from the site today, because people see that and think, oh, well, this is legitimate, you know, whether it fits or not, and I like essays. Um, and so, you know, those I think sort of fit in a funny kind of way, people kind of recognize where they fall. But it's, it is difficult if you are not publishing the status quo. It's very difficult, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand because, you, know, you know, I know so many people who have submitted books to publishers, you know, including myself. And a lot of the times they don't respond yeah. to you. You know, they just say they have this copy paste rejection letter of saying, oh, we loved your work, but it wasn't a good fit. And, you know, it just feels like they are looking for stuff that fit their requirements, you know, 100%, whether it's genre right. or the tone or the length. And, and also another fear that I think me and a lot of other publishers who are strongly attached to their characters in fiction have is that they will require you to make so many changes, yeah. you know, just like how that person proposed changing your setting. Right. You know, I, I don't really want that. And I'm also afraid of losing my rights over the work, too. You know, what if they propose all these changes and then I don't have the right to write about these characters anymore? That's another fear I have. So, right. yeah. There's, you know, it, yeah. Let me just clarify something, which might be useful to your audience, is that whenever you sell your rights to a book, for instance, um, The Inevitable Past, the, the book that we're talking about now, you know, I've sold my rights to that story but that is just that story i could write another book about regina and her grandmother you know like a sequel the characters always belong to the author they you know you never that that never gets purchased in the rights oh, only that story that's really gets purchased that's right that that's a relief. Yeah that, no. was one, yeah, that was one of the reasons I sometimes kind of hesitated to submit. And sometimes even after submitting, I'm like, oh, no, if they accept me, what's going to happen? No. Am I going to have to not talk about my characters ever no, again? No, no. So that's, yeah. you know, a lot of people do not understand that, that you are selling the story, you're not selling the characters. Now, there may be some instances in which, you know, because a character becomes franchised or whatever, that uh, a publisher will say, we wanna, you know, we wanna switch things around. But in general, that's the rule. You're selling the story, you are not selling the characters. Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah, that that's that's a lot more fair. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's very, very complicated, the whole issue of, of publishing. And um, Jean isn't the only uh, literary press that's had difficulty 
um, in the last few years. You know, many of them have, because it's it's so difficult to um, place books in bookstores. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize when a book is, you know, when you go down the aisles of a bookstore, but, you know, at the end of the, the aisle, there's always some books are put face out and um, publishers pay for that. That it's called an end cap. And, you know, if you have a small publisher, um, and occasionally a book that's not paid to be an end cap gets picked up as an end cap. A couple of my books have been picked up as end caps, but but not because Jean paid for it. But in general, publishers are paying for end caps. They're also paying to have the book on the shelf face out versus stacked up with just the spine showing. So if you're working with a small press and they can't afford that kind of thing, then it becomes harder. You know, how does somebody find you in that staff? You know, always the issue. Mm -hmm. So you guys, by the way, you're That's supposed to make true. me famous so that it's going to be easier for me, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Right. So the next question is, we're going to switch over to Tete, who's going to ask the rest of the questions for this podcast. Okay, great. Perfect. Perfect. Well, so my first question is, Balancing a multi multiple perspective story, that's it's very daunting, especially when working with, you know, first person POV. How did you yeah. tackle that challenge? Well, um, first of all, I think that it is so one of the things that you have to do, you have to lay the groundwork. You don't just like wake up one morning and say, oh, I can manage this. You really have to understand what's each of those characters sounds like, and also what they look like, how they walk, how they sit, how they answer a question, how they hold their heads. So, um, you know, I sometimes when I'm working with with authors who have are having problems with that, I say, "Where's your sketchbook? Where, where is your outline of who that care each character is?" And if you really do your background research, if you really build your characters, so you can, and it, with the intention that you're going to use multiple points of view, you really have to do quite a bit of work that doesn't go on the page. Eventually, it goes on the page of that background research, where you can hear the distinct voice of each character. Um, in in this book that you know there's the separation of historical time you know in space so language changes you know like the 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 concept that you know the fact that i use the historically correct phrase for someone who was a typist at that time was a typewriter and this was also very true with the, with computers the women who worked on the first big mainframe um, they were called computers they were not called, you know, IT people. They were called computers. Um, so, you know, to to kind of, if you're going to do it, find out what the language is they would use. Um, and if mm -hmm. there's technical language, find out what that technical language is and use it correctly and begin to hear those voices. So the cadence, I ought to be able to read a passage to you and you ought to be able to say, ah, that's the grandmother or ah, that's Regina. Um, 
And I certainly hope you can pick out Clyde, you know. Oh, definitely. He he was very distinct. He he certainly yeah, he was. was. Very yeah. enjoyable. I mean, like, how do I say it? It's like just just this there there you you really presented a, a really uh, really strong, unique, respective triage in, in the story. And that's what really held me because I I often want to write stories that have multiple POVs because a lot of times just having a singular POV in the first person, it, it kind of limits the story to a degree and then you can't get all the other juicy bits, you know? Right. And you have to be careful if you if you're writing from a, a singular point of view, you have to be sure that um, you have to make the decision, uh, is this gonna be a reliable narr narrator or an unreliable narrator? And then to build that, um, because it, those are your two options, you know? And so you yeah. have to know that, and you can't vacillate on them. They're, they're either reliable or they're not reliable. And so then you have to begin to sort of watch the decisions they make. And um, I think that that's, for me, that's why that's the thing that interests me about writing, is certainly isn't the money, you know. Um, what interests me about it is sort of getting into the head of somebody and saying, how would they do that? You know, I'm not the character. Um, people always say, oh, are you this character in this book? And I say, no, 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 no. If I were ever the main character or a character in a book, I would be taller, thinner much richer, more charming, and, you know, smarter, for sure. Um, but, you know, you can't make yourself the main character because you wouldn't tell the truth about it. And the, the, that really becomes very important is um, each of those characters in their own way has to be truthful about their flaws and their strengths. Um, so it's, it's kind of... Uh, I also encourage people, and I do it as well. I was working this morning. I got up early to to prepare for this and also to work on the piece I'm working on now. And I read my text out loud. Um, and I do that for two reasons. One is because I want to hear the difference in the voices. I want to make sure that I am... Uh, making the distinction between one character and another character. I don't want the grandmother and Regina to sound the same. So I'll read them there, you know, and sort of pick up on their cadence. And when I was working this morning, I, you know, was writing a sentence and uh, that one character was part of a dialogue. And I, I, when I read it out loud, I thought, well, she wouldn't say it that way. So I rewrote the whole thing. And so I'm always trying to, to look at how, how would somebody really, how would that character say something? Um, the other thing is I, I used to do a lot of radio work and um, I would go into the studio to, you know, record the, you know, whatever pieces I was working on for whatever company I was working on them for. And I would always give the, the voiceover person uh, the script before we started taping. And I would have them read it to me cold. You know, I never let them study it. I always gave it to them cold, had them read it. If they stumbled on a word because that was not a comfortable word for them, I would change that word so that they would be believable as a character in whatever piece I was doing for somebody. Does that make sense? That make that does make a lot of sense, and that's actually a very very good strategy for for 
for, for doing that. That's very, very brilliant. It works, you know. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for this advice. It's definitely something I'm going to learn and apply in my own work. And um, well, this actually ties in with the previous question. My next question, um, and you sort of answered it. I, well, you pretty much did because I was going to ask how you, you know, tackle that to keep each voice consistent because I was really amazed with the amazing job you did of keeping, you know, that very unique triad of unique, uh, you know, respective voices, you know, the granddaughter, the grandmother and Clyde and, uh, you know, e even even like the the temporary uh, POV of of the matron, you did that so distinctive. How how do you how do you prepare the reader for that transition like that break? Like, is it in a opening of a chapter or is there another way to kind of signify to the reader that now we're jumping to another POV? So that's a super good question. Um, so one way to do it, which is exactly that, is um, in, in, in a musical affair, because there are many points of view and many points of view in a musical affair, and the voices change and they're very distinct throughout the book, is I, instead of titling the chapters like chapter one, two, three, four, I give the characters. So when you go to the next chapter, the headline on the next chapter is the name of that character. So that's that's where you're going to be. You're going to be listening to. So you get keyed into it that you are, um, you know, now we're switching points of view. And so, you know, that's one way to do it. It's a little simple way to do it. And it's clean because, um, you know, have you ever, you know, some authors make these elaborate um, genealogical, you know, charts in the beginning of a particularly a historic novel so that you know who's who and what's what. But then, you know, I'm forever flipping back to the front of the book to find out, okay, who, where am I now? You know, where am I in this genealogy? <laughs> yes. Absolutely nuts. So I want to call them up and say, look, if you would just key each chapter with the person, that would really like, you know, just give me George and I would know, <laughs> you know? Yes, um, I know what you mean. Yeah, so that would, that's one way to do it. Um, the other way, you know, when, you know, when you have two main character, distinct characters, point of views going on is, um, you use a little narrative uh, in between so that I know I'm switching maybe a, a physical description. So, um, you know, she she listened but turned away because um, blah, blah, blah. So Rebecca turned away and then, then you get, and then Rebecca speaks. So, oh, Rebecca turned away, now Rebecca speaks. And, you know, it's so important to honor your readers to not beat them over the head to give them enough information so they can follow along and to respect them that they will follow along but if you tell them everything then they don't get to solve the mystery themselves and then that's when you lose the reader so you give them just enough information like she turned her head and blah 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 or whatever so a little narration that then i know i'm going to the next character that that is that is a perfect strategy for that. That is brilliant, and I 
I'm definitely going to apply that. Now I have a better, uh, better battle plan, if you will, than, you know, just sort of, yes, that's a brilliant, that's a wonderful organization there. And that makes it very easy for the writer. And then if the writer has an easy time, then the audience will have an easy time as well. Yeah. Exactly. You know, um, uh, I, I think that, I mean, that's the way my mind works. And I think if I, if somebody, you know, I'm, people say, well, how did you come up with that? Uh, my father was blind and he oh. loved the movies. He loved going to the movies. And so we would always sit in the back row with him and, you know, we'd have to cue him because, um, you know, particularly like he loved Westerns. He loved uh, detective dramas and things like that. I mean, he just really, really enjoyed the movies and we would go to the movies with him. And so when there were pauses in dialogue, we would have to cue my dad as to what's happening, you know? Okay. Ah. Sundance is about ready to shoot so-and-so, you know? Right, right. Right. So, you know, it's called cueing. And um, they actually teach people. I was I was at a cocktail party one time and people were talking about, oh, this, you know, this person that was at this party, they were so cool because, you know, they were professional um, arts, you know, person who, who went with blind people to various, uh, you know, theatrical events and movies and opera and whatever. And, you know, where they were trained in cueing and I started to laugh and they said, why are you laughing? And I said, well, because that's what I did as a child. I mean, you know, I didn't, nobody trained me to do that. My dad trained me to do that. But <laughs> you know, that was, um, and I think that that's how I hear it in my head because, you know, I guess I imagine, okay, there's, you know, I need, I need to have the reader be like, you know, I need to bring them up to speed. So, I just give them a cue. That that's that is that is how do I say that's an, another excellent strategy. So there is, uh, from what from what I can tell from your writing and what you're sharing is that you definitely go in with an organized method. And of course, I can see this in the uh, in in the fantastic guide you have created. Um, and I, I think this is very vital because I feel like a lot of writers sort of throw everything into the pot and hope it all, you know, comes together as a cohesive unit. But I think a lot of people would benefit to learn from from your strategies and from from what I'm hearing, you know, th these are really these are really good applications I can use in my own work because that's something I really struggle with a lot. Yeah. And, you know, for the longest time, I think the hardest thing for writers to do without being clumsy is to move their characters from one room to another, you know? Ah, yes, I did not think about that. <laughs> Very hard. And that's like, a, if you can learn to do that with a certain amount of grace and also let that bit of narration of somebody leaving the room give you some additional information about why they left, how they felt when they left or whatever, you can you can get them out of the room, but to always be saying he left the room, like so what? You know? So what? Yes, that's true. <laughs> yes, what? You know, you're right. Oh my gosh. You know, so that's it's like getting characters to move around is really complicated, but if you are become good at it and worth.
practicing to become good at it. Um, it, boy, it, it just lights up your writing. Um, let, can I tell you another little trick about learning to the differences in dialogue to be able oh, sure. to understand? So yeah. there, there's this is a great um, exercise. Uh, what what you two, several things. One of them is when people start to write dialogue, they feel as though they have to write in complete sentences. Well, I'm sorry, I don't. I'm a fairly intelligent human being. I've been writing for close to 50 years. I don't speak in complete sentences and I doubt that you guys do either, you know? And so when you are starting to create dialogue and you see it on the page, you feel as though, oh, where does the punctuation go? Where does this happen? Where does that happen? And then it becomes very unnatural because it becomes very stilted, you know? Um, so, the other thing is dialogue is more than the words that are spoken. It is dialogue shows you the power differential between the two people talking. So for instance, when two people first meet, the dialogue for each of them is long. You know, hi, how are you? Who are you? Oh, you're a writer. Oh, that's wonderful. What do you write? How long have you been writing? So the questions are long. The answers are long. And it's a way for us to kind of adjust to each other and have a way to, to know who, who the person is, how they think, you know, are they political? Are they this? Are they that? Whatever. Are they, you know. But the more we know somebody, the shorter our dialogue becomes. We don't have to yes. say all those things every time we meet. We can yeah. just pick up in a half sentence. And so, I, you know, I tell people, you start with this big dialogue and then you go to this other and this other. And as you become better and better friends, you don't have to explain so much. And when you start sleeping with somebody, that's when, you know, when the dialogue just gets to almost like just one or two words, sentences between each other, you know that somebody's sleeping with somebody, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> so the other thing is it's, it's a power differential. So right. if um, there's two ways to show power, one is to just go, mm -hmm, yes, no, end of question, leave your, you know, go to your room. And so let's say that the teenager comes in and says, you know, there's a football game on Friday and um, it would really be nice. And could I borrow the car? And, you know, I don't, I won't have very much homework and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and just this kind of gurbling on that goes and the parent is just standing there and says, no. That I, yes. a power dialogue. <laughs> so, you know, if you go, to, I would really challenge everybody who's listening to this to go to a coffee shop somewhere right. where, and take a piece of paper and a pencil. And what you do is you begin to overhear conversations. You don't write down the words that they're saying, but you let's, let's say that you have two people. So you have a one and a two. And number one starts to speak. And as soon as number one starts to speak, you start drawing a line with your pencil. When they stop, you stop. Number two starts to speak. You start drawing a line. Oh, they stop. Oh, their line is shorter. And you begin, all you're doing is tracking the length of the dialogue for each of them. 
Oh, you know what? That is excellent. It's it's almost in many ways a kind of kind of a sort of a, a, a screen a screenplay sort of approach in a way. Exactly. And so if you, you know, if you do that for two or three conversations, you're not writing down what they're saying. You're merely writing down. You're merely drawing a line to get an idea of the length of each person's speech. And then sit for a minute and look at those lines and think, what does this tell me about this relationship? Oh my goodness, you're right. That that is a, that is a very excellent excellent strategy. I never even thought of that. It's really fun. I mean, it's a really fun thing to do because you become seriously aware of, um, you know, who's controlling the dialogue, who's controlling the conversation, what's the power differential going on here. Yes, absolutely. You're right, and. This is, I mean, I'm actually taking notes right now. <laughs> this is a bit of a master class, you know. <laughs> but that's, you know, it's it's a really fun thing to do. And then you you get a sense of the rhythm of how a natural dialogue happens. Yes, that's, you know, that's true because I think a lot of people, they, they do struggle to write dialogue. And a lot of times I'll, I'll be reading something and it, it just feels unnatural. Like, I mean, no fault of anyone's, but it, it just does not gel right, you know. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't ring. It doesn't go. But yes. when, you, when you start reading and it becomes very exciting when somebody really knows how to handle dialogue, because it's like you get, um, you're in on the joke, you know, you get the inside information. It's not the words they're saying, it's the length, it's the pauses. It's, you know, um, who steps back, who steps forward. Um, and so it becomes all these subtle messages. And if you handle it well, the reader gets very excited because it's like, oh, I know what's going on. You know, she's cheating. You know, she's not telling the truth. Um, and, and that's also, you know, you kind of get, I, I don't know, it's fun. It's more fun to, to understand it that way. I, I love that approach. I do. And, and you know, it's true. You, you do, when you're the one writing it, you do understand the, the ins and outs. That's why sometimes I like something that's kind of a parry back and forth between the characters, because I, I know exactly where this is going to go and, yes. you know, what exactly they're talking about. So I, always, I love it when that, when that flows together and it kind of feels like, you know, real life or a very, very good movie that feels like real life. Yes. Yeah. And so um, it's good. It's really fun. And then those are like wonderful books to read and um, and characters you never forget because the rhythm of their language gets like into your head and you you know that rhythm and you know that character. And, you know, if you hear somebody with a similar rhythm, it'll automatically bring you back to that book or whatever. And it'll be like a little brain pleasure, you know? Absolutely. It is. It is. And there's that, that sense of accomplishment when you've done it, you know, successfully and, and it's like the audience gets it, you know? Right. Yeah. So yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time reading things out loud to myself and making sure that I believe them. You know, <laughs> yes, that is so true. <laughs> I, I do too. I'll, I'll, I will just like read things again and again, and I'll be like, 
I'll try to imagine it with, with voices or I'll try to imagine it being played out like a really good movie before me. And I'm like, if it sounds natural, I'm, I'm like a director and I'll say cut, you know, but yeah, well, there's a, another question I have. It's also a technical question. So in your works, um, you know, you, you, you have a very good balance, you know, the, ba the, I mean, the, the pacing is always well balanced. So when you're focusing on pacing and making sure each chapter begins, has its middle and resolves its, you know, somewhat conclusion for that chapter, how do you know when to stop a chapter and when to move on to the next chapter? Oh, uh, that's a good question. So, so think of, hmm, so the first the first couple sentences in every chapter, just like the first, so the first couple sentences in a book become the promise of the book. And the last sentences in the book should be the actualization or the realization of that promise. Did, do they match? You know, did you, what you promised me, did you deliver it to me? And you should, I should be able to take the first two sentences, the first paragraph of any book and the last paragraph of that same book. And those two paragraphs should work together. And does that make sense? That does make sense. That really does. It, so it's a promise. So it's, yeah. the same thing. it's the same thing with every chapter. So the beginning of every chapter, those first couple sentences set up what is going to happen in that chapter? And the last couple sentences should tell me, did you come come true with that? Or did you trick me? I'm and, actually writing this down. This is so good. <laughs> good advice. And, and so you, you know, you, um, every time you enter a chapter, you have to have in your head a sense of what does this character want? What does this where is this character going? And you got to make sure that they get there. If you promise me that, you know, if those few sentences in the beginning set that up, tee it up, you better, you better hit the mark by the end of that, you know, and that's, that's how you know how a chapter works. That's it's, very true. Oh my goodness. I'm just writing this down. This is very good advice. Yes. And so, you know, it's, it's, um, some people would say, oh, well, you know, your method is so mechanical. And I said, yeah, but it works. You know, <laughs> there should, there's, I think, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that when to have good, effective writing and also, you know, that you don't end up pulling your hair and screaming in your, into your screen <laughs> um, <laughs> is that you, you should have a, a technical discipline to it. And I think a lot of people make the mistake, you know, they're just like, keyboard smash and then they're like well right. i had an outline but then they're not applying any of the other technical discipline to it so it's it, you know some ways writing it, it's like a, it's like a performance art in a way it's just right. done differently and, you know i don't work from an outline and i never know where um a book is going to go so um i i work from characters and i build characters and have them interact um, and it isn't until I get to the end of any book that I realize where the book was going. And that's when I really start to work on the book, because then it's like I go back to the beginning and I make sure that all those pieces are there. 
what would have to be there in order for that ending to be true. That's very and true. And so I go back and then I start editing and saying, oh, I need, she needs to see the ghost here. She needs to have that built. Um, you know, the, the whole issue of um, having Clyde come in in the end, you know, this is a spoiler alert, having the Clyde, Clyde come in in the end and um, being at that grave site and realizing that there's something else going on there that she, the grandmother is, that all of these people are buried there, women who've been thrown away basically they were unmarried children who died in childbirth blah 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 you know that they're all in unmarked graves and he realizes it and he hasn't been a believer up to that point but he feels it but i've so i have to set that up i you know that that scene would not have worked if i hadn't set it up that that scene would flip him does that mm -hmm. wow that, that that makes yes. a lot of sense that is yeah. and so he had to you know i knew in order for that scene to work that he could not have uh come into that he could not have said oh yeah your grandmother's ghost oh yeah i'm there i got it you know we got to follow your grandmother's ghost he doesn't ever say that until he no, gets to no. that and then he he knows he knows and he knows a chilling moment for the reader that this mm -hmm. this guy who's not attached to the ghost who just kind of is attached to the girl but not the ghost has that moment where he realizes what actually he tells the granddaughter there's you know other people buried here that, that's, so that's, that's yeah. And so, you know, you have to, when you get to the end of the book, you know, everything you have to tee up when you go start from the beginning again, you, it, it should clarify for you who the characters, what their strengths and what their weaknesses have to be in order for your story to move along and come to that resolution. That's very true. Right. And would you say that when you go back to the beginning, you also end up removing a lot of things oh, yeah. that are irrelevant? Oh, yeah. Because I think some other writers, like, you know, besides, I mean, writers, besides struggling with not having enough uh, stuff in their story to flesh out a character or theme, they also struggle with having too much irrelevant uh, details, right? That don't contribute to the very end or tie tie it back right. to the beginning. So, you know, the re when you go back to the beginning, you not only have to add things, but you also have to delete have a lot to of delete things. a whole lot. Anything that does not move the story along to the ending has to be removed. And a lot of people are like, oh my God, you made me, I wrote that. And I'm like, yeah, we'll get over it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't move the story along. It shouldn't be there because that's going to take me, that's going to distract me from what you're doing. That's going to take me away from the power of the story. So get rid of it. Um, you know, I used mm -hmm. to like, um, <laughs> You know, I'm I'm old enough that you know it was uh, I used a Smith Corona typewriter for the first writing career. Um, you know, and and used such things as you know whatever white out. You know, um, but the computer like scared the hell out of me because you know this delete button. You know, you could like mark something and 
you know, and it could be gone. And I'm like, wait a minute, because, you know, when you're doing things on a typewriter, you have all of these drafts, you know, hundreds of drafts and you pile them up. This is draft number one, draft number two, draft number three. So you never are losing anything because it's still on paper but you have this little bitty type machine and you have this big delete button. And when you push the delete button, things disappear. And for, I would say the first two or three years that I worked on a computer, I would mark, excuse me, I would mark and copy. I wouldn't delete. And then I would carry, you know, then I would transport them to another uh, folder and I would have all these wonderful things, you know, that I was in, I would mark what pages they were on. So if I wanted to go back to it, I was so afraid to delete like that. It was like terrifying. And now it's like, you know, I don't do that. You know, I, I look at something, I read it out loud and I think you don't belong here. No, <laughs> delete, you know? Um, yeah, you have to clean it up. And I don't know why pe that's so scary for people, you know, because they're word counters. It's like, oh, my God, I've got my 54,000 words and you're going to have me take out 6,000 of them. And I'm like, yeah, I am going to have you take out 6,000 of them because they don't do anything for the story. So first you take out what you don't need. Then you find out what's missing and you put that in and you don't worry about the word count. That's that's such solid advice. That really is. And that's something. Uh... You know, I think I and many other writers have struggled with, and this is a this is a very this is very sound advice. I if I seem a little distracted just because I'm note taking, like I said, it's been a real masterclass this conversation, and um, it's you know many many writers don't even think about this. They they really don't. I mean, a lot of them are just throwing everything into the pot, so to speak, and there's no, you know what I mean. There, there's no thought to the technicality of it all. Right. Or, or to the sense that there should be a rhythm, there should be a, you know, a way to rein it in so that you surprise the reader. Um, but, you know, you can't do dumb things like um, trick the reader, you know, surprising the reader and tricking the reader are two different things, completely different things. Like, I think the only successful quote unquote tricking that I've ever known was um, the... William Goldman has a character who he gives a, a, a male character in one of his books um, who he gives a female name to like Lucy or something like that. So you think for uh, a third of the book or so that, you know, this character is a woman and then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and it's revealed that it's a man and you're like, whoa, what happened there? You know, because we make the assumption because of the character's name, who they are and what they, you know, what they sound like and whatever. Um, yeah, I think it's in Marathon Man. Um, and that's the only time that I felt that it was successfully done, that sort of tricking the reader. Um, that's the only person I've known who did that well. So be careful you know, not to trick the, surprise the reader, but don't trick the reader. Don't feel as like, yeah, that was really great. Like they didn't know it was a ghost. Mm, no, tell them right off. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Right. Yeah, but there needs to be like an honesty with the right. writer and audience. And well, you know, so the, so speaking of not tricking the, well, I mean, not, not, uh, not tricking the reader per se, this kind of ties in a little bit. Um, 
this is another daunting thing. So a lot of people straddle either they will info dump an absolute history book into a work or it feels very anachronistic because they haven't done research. Where do you find that that balance to create, you know, a story as you've created and when it, when it, when is it appropriate to research, you know, to incorporate research historical facts into fiction? Well, I really love, you know, you have to do a good rule of thumb is you have to, for every 10 pages you write that has historical information in it, you should have read at least a hundred pages to get those 10 pages, or, you know, it's kind of a one to 10 ratio. Um, and then you have to be selective. Like, what is it important? The, the play that I'm working on now, there's two historical um, people in the play. One of them is Mary Cassatt, the American painter, and the other one is Eleanor Roosevelt. And I have sitting at the, on the floor at my desk. I won't even show you my desk because it's pretty terrifying at this point. I'm in the middle of this whole thing. I have a, you know what bankers boxes are? You know, they're, they're kind of- oh, Yes, I do. Well, I have a banker's box that is overflowing with part of the research I've done with this play. And um, so I'm just looking for what, is what's the most important thing for me to give you that's not the historically the most important thing what is the piece of that history that's going to best illuminate who these characters are and why they say the things they say the other thing is um if you're going to have a, a historical setting of any kind, even, you know, or, or a, a real, let's not even use the word historical. Let's use the word realistic setting of any kind. And you're going to have it in, let's say, in Chicago or Pittsburgh. Let's say you're going to set a story in Pittsburgh. Right. Do not set a story in Pittsburgh unless you go to Pittsburgh and walk the streets of Pittsburgh and know how it smells, know where the names of the streets are. You know, I think the biggest problem for me, um, I could open my my uh, cabinets back here and you'd go, oh my God, um, I collect maps. Um, and I collect maps because I want the street names. I want to know how the city looks. If I'm gonna put a story somewhere, I want to know how the city works, where the bus lines are, where this happened, were there battles there, where was this, that, whatever, you know, um, where, where's the railroad? Um, so I, and those, if you start working with that kind of a mindset of what's the name of that street? What is the rational, you know, where would somebody actually live? Would that be a good street to live on? Do, you know, would rich yeah. people, there would poor people live there know something about that street before you put the character there once you start doing that you have a better picture in your mind of who these characters are and you give a veracity to the reader they're like oh i've walked on gloria street before i know what she's talking about 
Oh I've my God. Yes. So, you know, give, give me the details that I need to create the picture in my mind of who these characters are and where these places are. And so I often travel, if I set a story in a city or a town or whatever, I will travel there. And, um, or I, if I can't afford to travel there, I, I'll move the story, not to an office, but I'll move the story <laughs> someplace where I can. And, you know, I can see it. And I, I know that when you walk by a certain store, there used to be this fabulous Italian grocery store called Fontano's in Chicago. And um, if you walk down the street and pass the door of Fontano, they, they were known for making the best um, Italian beef sandwiches in the world. They were fabulous. And when you walked by Fantano's, you know, you smelled that. Wow. You smell this roast beef. So you better believe I'm going to put that in a story because anybody who'd ever walked down that street, they would know that that's true. And when you give a reader something that's true, they they feel respected and they respect you. That's very true. That's mm -hmm. very true. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. And it also shows that, you know, you're creating a more immersive atmosphere too. You know, you're not just picking this city or town just because you want to, you know, it, it's there exactly. for a reason. So if it's not there for a reason, then it shouldn't be there at all. That's exactly, right. exactly. And that's, that is such that, that is such a good approach to incorporating detail. I mean, because uh, I've I've read quite a bit of historical fiction in my day, and a lot of them come off as just, you know, like I said, either those extremities, either there's too much detail, it bogs everything down, and it, it kind of distracts from the relevancy of the story, or I think I think the bigger pet peeve is when it feels anachronistic. You know, like when people are, or they're trying to apply like a, a modern a modern uh, mindset to like say something said in the 1200s France or something. Right, right. And you know you have to be, um, you know, like like a book like The Inevitable Past. If I would have come out of the box swinging and talking about um, women's rights, you know, and uh, abortion, and uh, you know, blah blah blah. If I would have come out swinging on those issues, you would have thought, I'm not going to read this. But because I take you on a journey that gets you there to experience it firsthand through the grandmother, um, and then again through that young woman who's in the rally in Chicago, you know, um, you stop and think. Um, you know, the the Barbie movie, there was a, uh, which I adored, you know, um, one of the commentators said, you know, that there, you know, there's this fabulous monologue about how difficult it is to be a woman. Um, and uh, it's a long dialogue, um, a long monologue. And the, the, the critic said, if that dialogue had been given, if the movie had been heavy handed from the very beginning about this whole issue of what it's like to be a woman, from the perspective of being a woman and Barbie and whatever, nobody would have listened to it. 
because you'd be like, blah, 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 you know, so what? But because it got packaged in all this pink fluff and these phenomenal dance performances, when that dialogue, when that monologue comes, it just about knocks you off your seat because you are not expecting it, but you've been prepared for it, but you're not expecting it. And it happens. And people have actually stood up and cheered in the middle of the movie when this, this monologue comes or cried through it. Um, it's a very emotional thing, but it's a Barbie movie. It's pink and it's fluffy. It's fluffy. And, and, you know, and Ryan Gosling, he better win every award known to mankind for this dance routine that he does with all the kins. And you're like dazzled by that. And then, you know, by this absolute, you know, Bob Fosse kind of extravaganza. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, five beats later, there's this monologue that just, is a bit of a whiplash. And um, so, you know, you, you've gotta, you've gotta set it up and you, you've got to know how to make the scene that's going to give people an opportunity to see what you have to say in a fresh way. That's very true. That is very, I mean, that, and, and you know it's such a, such a recent example too. You know, with uh, no, nobody nobody would expect that. Yet it, it provides that impact the way it's presented. And it made me think of what you said about if something is set in a different setting or a different context, then you're able to how do I say explore a message or convey a message or an idea or a concept that other people would be uh, resistant to. You know, Absolutely. whether it's a social social or a political idea or just a common sense idea. Um, and I, I thought about that, too, because I'm, I'm writing something that takes place in the 1920s and it's kind of a reimagined 1920s. And the reason I do it is if I were to do it in modern day, um, people would instantly dig their heels in and say, no, I won't read that. Like, oh, what are they going on about? You know, and then. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there used to, oh, I don't even have it because it, it, it was in shreds after a while. Um, you can get books um, from used bookstores or whatever that have uh, chronological histories day by day. This happened on this day. This happened on that day. And, it, you know, I used to, I used this book until it was just, the pages just fell out on the floor. Um, so because, you know, details get muckled up in your mind, you know, as to, okay, so when was that vote? When was this? When was that? You know, when did the Titanic sink? Okay. So it's really important to get that kind of information in line so that people can say, oh, because they, they get a little bit dazzled because all of a sudden you've put it in context. I, I, let me see if I can't pull it out. Um, I read this fabulous book uh, I wasn't prepared to tell you about this. Um, the book about Eleanor written by, okay, I'm going to drop some stuff on the floor here. See if I can come up with it. Oh, that's okay. Um, nope, it's not the last book. It is. Okay, Doris Kearns Goodwin, G-O-O-D-W-I-N. 
um, no ordinary time. It was the winner, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Whether you are interested in history or not, this is the most beautifully written chunk of history I have read in years. I just, I just swallowed this book whole, um, and it's eight, it's almost eight hundred pages long, but I couldn't put it down because her, the way she presented the details of this succinct historical time was so fabulous, and it brought it to life. And I thought, wow. I mean, it was it was the gem of all the research I've done, and it it set everything else in a different place. Once I finished with the book, and then I had to go back with what I had done, and um, you know, rewrite it and and fit her understanding of what happened when. So, what's important? Details matter. You know, I had a very true. I had a situation where. I had this great coffee shop um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, and it just was in the right location. Everything about it was perfect for the story. Everything was about it that was perfect for the story. And um, right after I submitted the story, it closed. Oh. Like, what? No, no, no. no oh, you, don't see, you don't seem to understand because he... I, I use you in this story and I need you to be there. I need people to know that it's there, you know, anyway. So I had to change the name. I had to do a whole bunch of stuff. I had to find another coffee shop because it just wrecked what was going on because it wasn't there anymore. Didn't exist. You know, anyway, I like details. Details are nice. That, that's a, that's a very, very good approach to balancing details and making things vivid and, well, you know, th this has been a fantastic masterclass. I've definitely taken some notes and okay. I've learned a lot of lessons because uh, right now I'm, I'm kind of embarking something that's kind of being a very slow burn work. I'm, I'm going to let it grow a little bit before I really tackle it. And um, th this has been a very, very enlightening night. A lot has been learned. Thank you for this. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me back. I've, I always have a good conversation with you guys. This was just amazing. You know, I, I learned so much and we got to explore, you know, your writing process in so much detail. This is just amazing. And, you know, I think all of us are going to learn so much when this podcast oh, comes out. Great. Well, thank you so much. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you again. This you're was welcome. a real, how do I say, just a really wonderful evening of enlightenment. It just what your absolute uh, how do I say? Absolutely a master. It was a real master class tonight. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I enjoy it. And uh, I like writing and I want other people to enjoy it as much as I do, you know? Yes. Right. You're welcome. Thank you so much.